Welcome to Our Savior and Friend, The Book of Luke, by John M. Fowler, edited for audio by the Ambassador Group. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Luke 1, 37, New King James Version. The Gospel of Luke was written primarily to the Gentiles. Luke himself was a Gentile. This detail is implied in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Colossians 4, 10-14. He refers to Luke when listing the group of those sending greetings. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son to Barnabas, whom ye received commandments. If he come unto you, receive him. And Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you, and them that are in Laodicea, and them in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. Theophilus, to whom Luke's telling of the gospel is addressed, was also a Gentile. In addition to being a physician, Luke was a meticulous historian. In introducing the gospel, Luke places Jesus in real history. He puts the story in the historical context of his times. Herod was the king of Judea, Luke 1, 5. Augustus reigned over the Roman Empire, Luke 2, verse 1. And a priest by the name of Zacharias was exercising his turn in the temple in Jerusalem, Luke 1, 5, and verse 9. In chapter 3, Luke mentions six contemporary dates related to the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. In this way, Luke places the story of Jesus in history, real people, real times, in order to dismiss any idea of mythology with his narrative. His readers must stand in awe and wonder at the fact that Jesus is real and that through him, God has invaded history with as Luke 2.11 says, the Savior who is Christ the Lord. An orderly account. Acts chapter 1, verse 1, tells us that before Acts was written, its author wrote a former account. This, and the fact that both accounts were addressed to Theophilus, helps lead us to conclude that one author was responsible for both books. The two accounts can be viewed as part 1 and part 2 of Origin and History of the Christian Church. Part 1 is the narrative of the life and work of Jesus the Gospel of Luke, and Part 2, Acts of the Apostles, is an account of the spread of the message of Jesus and of the early church. How was the Gospel written? Let's listen to what the Bible tells us. One of the two references is written by Luke, the Greek physician. Let's listen to both biblical references. First, 
Luke chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write unto thee in order, most excellent Theophilus. And Second Timothy 3.16, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Luke was aware of many who had written about the events that have shaken the city of Jerusalem and beyond, the events concerning Jesus Christ. The sources for such literary works included many eyewitnesses and ministers of the word. As Luke 1 verse 2 of the New King James Version tells us, a clear reference to the disciples and other contemporaries of Jesus. Luke himself had an exposure to these witnesses and ministers, such as Paul and other apostolic leaders, and possibly also to the Gospels written by Mark and Matthew. Luke obviously was not an eyewitness to the Jesus story. Luke was aware of many who had written about the events that have shaken the city of Jerusalem and beyond, the events concerning Jesus Christ. The sources for such literary works included many eyewitnesses and ministers of the word, as Luke chapter 1 verse 2 of the New King James Version tells us. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us. This is a clear reference to the disciples and other contemporaries of Jesus. Luke himself had an exposure to these witnesses and ministers, such as Paul and other apostolic leaders, and possibly also to the Gospels written by Mark and Matthew. Luke obviously was not an eyewitness to the Jesus story, but he was a credible and authentic convert to Christ. Matthew wrote to a Jewish audience, presenting Jesus as the great teacher, the fulfillment of prophecy, and the king of the Jews. He often referred to Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled in Christ. Mark wrote to a Roman audience about Jesus, the person of action. Luke, a doctor and a Gentile, wrote to the Greeks and the Gentiles about the universal Jesus, the Savior of the world. Luke mentions two purposes of his writing. To present an orderly account, Luke 1, verse 3, New King James Version, and to provide certainty to the great teachings of the new era. Certainty about truth, as in Jesus, is one goal of his gospel. Luke, an inspired author of scripture, used other material in his writings. Very interesting. Obviously, that use of the other sources doesn't negate the inspiration or authority of what he wrote. What does this teach you about how inspiration, either canonical or non-canonical, works on inspired writers? His name, John. For nearly 400 years after Malachi, divine silence marked the history of Israel. With the birth announcements of John the Baptist and Jesus, the divine silence was about to be broken. The birth stories of John and Jesus have parallels. Both are miracles. In the case of John, Elizabeth had gone well past the childbearing age. In the case of Jesus, a virgin was to bear the child. The angel Gabriel announced both birth promises. 
both announcements, we received in a spirit of wonder, joy, and surrender to God's will. Both babies were to grow and become strong in the spirit. Luke describes John the Baptist's early years in Luke chapter 1, verse 80. And the child grew and waxed strong in the spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his shoeing unto Israel. And of Jesus, Luke 2, verse 40. And the child grew and waxed strong in the spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Both babies were to grow and become strong in the spirit. But the mission and the ministry of the two miracle babies were distinct and different. John was to be a preparer of the way to Jesus. These are Luke's words in Luke chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. And he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before them in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Jesus is called the Son of God in Luke 1, verse 35. Let's take a look at Luke 1, verses 31 through 35, to get the full picture. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come over you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also that the Holy One, who is to be born, will be called the Son of God. Let's listen to Luke 1, verses 5 through 22. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, of the course of Abiah. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son and thou shalt call his name John. And thou shalt have joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. For he shall be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, and he shall be filled with the Holy Ghost, even from his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God. And he shall go before them in the spirit and power of Elias, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, 
and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make a people ready, prepared for the Lord. And Zacharias said unto the angel, Whereby shall I know this? For I am an old man, and, and my wife well stricken in years. And the angel answering said unto him, I am Gabriel, that stand in the presence of God, and am sent to speak unto thee, and to show thee these glad tidings. And behold, thou shalt be dumb, and not able to speak, until the day that these things shall be performed, because thou believest not my words, which shall be fulfilled in their season. And the people waited for Zacharias, and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak unto them, for they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them, and remained speechless. Although Zacharias is depicted as blameless, his lack of faith at the angel's announcement brought a rebuke that literally left him speechless. How does this help you to understand what the concept of blameless means for a person who believes in Jesus? The birth of a son to Zacharias, like the birth of the child of Abraham and that of Mary, was to teach a great spiritual truth, a truth that we are slow to learn and ready to forget. In ourselves, we are incapable of doing any good thing, but that which we cannot do will be wrought by the power of God in every submissive and believing soul. It was through faith that the child of promise was given. It is through faith that spiritual life is begotten, and we are enabled to do the works of righteousness. Those were the words of Ellen G. White on page 98 in her classic book, The Desire of Ages. The miracle of John had a decisive purpose in God's dealing with his people. After 400 years of prophetic absence in the history of Israel, John did break forth into that history with a specific message and with a decisive power. John's mission and message was to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Luke chapter 1 verse 17, New King James Version. He was to be the forerunner of the Messiah, the one to prepare the way for the mission of Jesus. Jesus Christ was no normal event. It was marked in God's eternal calendar, and as the Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 4, verse 4, New King James Version, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman. It is the fulfillment of the first promise God made after the entrance of sin in Eden, recorded in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Let's listen to a few Old Testament and New Testament pairs of text. In the pairs of text, the Old Testament text tells the prophecy of the Messiah. The New Testament text reveals the fulfillment of that prophecy. As you listen to each pair, 
listen for how the birth of Jesus was an amazing fulfillment of prophecy. Pair number one, the prophecy in Deuteronomy 18.15 and the noted fulfillment in Acts chapter 3, verse 22 through 24. Prophecy, Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. The Lord thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee, of thy brethren, like unto me. Unto him ye shall hearken. Fulfillment, Acts chapter 3, verses 22 through 24. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you, of your brethren, like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel, and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Pair number two. The Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and the noted fulfillment in Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23. Prophecy, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Fulfillment, Matthew 1, verses 22 and 23. Now all this was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is interpreted, God with us. And pair number three, the Old Testament prophecy in Micah 5, verse 2, and the noted fulfillment in Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. Prophecy, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Fulfillment, Luke chapter 2, verses 4 through 7. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, into the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was out of the house and lineage of David to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And so she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the end. Since God kept his promises then, can you trust all of God's promises for your life too? Six months after Gabriel announced to Zacharias the coming birth of John, he announced to Mary of Nazareth an even greater miracle, that a virgin will conceive and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. Luke chapter 1, verse 31, New King James Version. The virgin birth of Jesus goes against all nature, and it cannot be explained by nature or naturalistic philosophy. Even Mary had her question, How can this be? since I do not know a man. Luke chapter 1, verse 34. The angel assured her that this would be the work of the Holy Spirit. Luke chapter 1, verse 35. And with God, nothing will be impossible. Verse 37. Mary's immediate and faithful submission was remarkable. Let it be to me according to your word. Luke chapter 1, verse 38. 
Every human question, no matter how natural or logical, must give way to the divine answer. Be it creation or the cross, the incarnation or the resurrection, the downpour of manna or the outpouring of Pentecost. The divine initiative demands human surrender and acceptance. While Mary answered her own question by submission and surrender to God's sovereignty and eternal purpose, Gabriel assured her with another great answer. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Luke chapter 1 verse 35, New King James Version. Some secular cultures have been browbeaten in believing that everything ultimately has a naturalistic and scientific explanation. Why is this such a narrow, even superficial view of the grandeur and greatness of reality? In your life, in your relationship with God, do you value awe, faith, and wonder? begins the story of the Bethlehem manger with a note of history. Joseph and Mary left their home in Nazareth to travel to their ancestral home of Bethlehem as a result of a census decree of Augustus Caesar, the emperor of Rome, when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Such historical details must lead biblical students to appreciate Luke's submission to the Holy Spirit so that he would record the details of the incarnation within the framework of history. Luke 2, verses 8 through 12, gives us the total picture. And there were, in the same country, shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Luke 2, verse 7, describes the setting of Jesus' birth. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. Reflect on the poverty of Jesus, as mentioned in Luke chapter 2, verse 7. Compare the image of swaddling clothes, the manger, and no room in the end. With Paul's description of condescension of Jesus in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, which says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. 
Here is a thought to ponder. What kind of road did Jesus walk on our behalf? The story of the poor circumstances in which the Lord of Heaven incarnated himself continues with the first visitors the manger had, the shepherds. Not to the rich or the powerful, not to the scribes or the priest, not to the rulers and the powers that held sway over the land did the good tidings of great joy come, but to the humble and despised shepherds. Observe the majesty and the simplicity of the message. A Savior is born to you. In the city of David, he is Christ, the Lord, the Anointed One. You will find him wrapped in swaddling clothes. Heaven's most precious gift came in such a simple package, as often it does. But the gift brings glory to God, on earth, peace, and goodwill towards men. Luke's record of the angel, in Luke chapter 2, verses 9-12, through 12, brings out three vital matters of Christian theology. First, the good news of the gospel is for all people. In Jesus, both the Jew and the Gentile become one people of God. Second, Jesus is the Savior. There is no one else. Third, Jesus is Christ, the Lord. These three themes, so clearly established early in Luke, later became the foundation of the apostolic preaching, particularly that of Paul. Think about what we Christians believe the creator of all that was made, not only entered into this fallen world as a human being, but he lived the hard life that Jesus did only to wind up on a cross. If we really believe that, why should every aspect of our life be lived in submission to this amazing truth? What parts of your life reflect on your belief in the story of Jesus, and what parts don't? Although writing primarily to the Gentiles, Luke was aware of the importance of the Jewish heritage through the Old Testament. He takes care to link the New Testament story with the Old and provide the beautiful scene of Mary and Joseph circumcising the baby Jesus on the eighth day and taking him to the temple in Jerusalem, all according to Jewish law. Luke chapter 2, verses 22 through 24 Describe one more thing they did at the temple. Make a sacrifice. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that openeth the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to that which is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Let's listen to Luke chapter 2, 25 through 32. Note three points about the theology of salvation that Simeon highlights. Salvation is through Jesus. Salvation is prepared by God. Salvation is for all peoples, to the Gentiles as well as to Israel. Luke chapter 2, 
verse 25 through 32. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem, whose name was Simeon, and the same man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Ghost was upon him. And it was revealed unto him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents had brought in the child Jesus to do for him after the custom of the law, then he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now lettest thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. How do these truths tie in with the first angel's message of Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through 7? And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea, and the fountains of waters. Simeon's prophecy also predicted two significant features of Jesus' ministry. First, Christ is destined for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. Luke chapter 2, verse 34, New King James Version. Yes, Christ has brought light and salvation to all, but not without cost to the recipient. With Christ, there is no neutral ground. Accept him or reject him. And upon the appropriate response, one's salvation depends. Christ demands exclusiveness. We abide in him or we do not. Those who abide in him will rise up and be part of his kingdom. Those who reject him or remain indifferent to him will fall to the ground and perish without hope. Faith in Christ is non-negotiable. Second, Simeon prophesies to Mary. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. Luke chapter 2, verse 35, New King James Version. The reference, no doubt, is to the cross, which Mary will witness. Mary, and all the generations that follow her, ought to remember that without the cross, there is no salvation. The cross is the hub around which the entire plan of salvation revolves. Salvation is a gift in that we can do nothing to earn it. Yet, it can still be very costly to those who claim it for themselves. Friend, what has following Christ cost you? And why is that cost, whatever it may be, cheap enough? Exploring. Luke, the writer of the gospel that bears his name, was a medical missionary. In the scriptures, he is called the Beloved Physician, Colossians 4.14. The Apostle Paul heard of his skill as a physician and sought him out as one to whom the Lord had entrusted a special work. 
He secured his cooperation, and for some time Luke accompanied him in his travels from place to place. After a time, Paul left Luke at Philippi in Macedonia. Here he continued to labor for several years, both as a physician and as a teacher of the gospel. In his work as a physician, he ministered to the sick and then prayed for the healing power of God to rest upon the afflicted ones. Thus the way was opened for the gospel message. Luke's success as a physician gained for him many opportunities for preaching Christ among the heathen. It is the divine plan that we shall work as the disciples worked. The reference for those words is Ellen G. White's book, The Ministry of Healing, pages 140 and 141. Here are a few questions to think about. If Luke, in writing his gospel, took into account previously published materials, how are we to understand the inspiration of the scriptures? As in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which states that all scripture is inspired by God. How does the process of inspiration work? Ellen G. White answers that question in her chapter entitled, The Inspiration of the Prophetic Writers, in her book, Selected Messages, Book 1, pages 15 to 23. This is a time when the question with all propriety may be asked. When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Luke 18, 8. Spiritual darkness has covered the earth, and gross darkness the people. There are in many churches skepticism and infidelity in the interpretation of the scriptures. Many, very many, are questioning the verity and truth of the scriptures. Human reasoning and the imaginings of the human heart are undermining the inspiration of the word of God, and that which should be received as granted is surrounded with a cloud of mysticism. Nothing stands out in clear and distinct lines upon rock bottom. This is one of the marked signs of the last days. This holy book has withstood the assaults of Satan, who has united with evil men to make everything of divine character shrouded in clouds and darkness. But the Lord has preserved this holy book by his own miraculous power in its present shape, a chart or guidebook to the human family to show them the way to heaven. But the oracles of God have been so manifestly neglected that there are but few in our world, even of those who profess to explain it to others, who have the divine knowledge of the scriptures. There are learned men who have a college education, but these shepherds do not feed the flock of God. They do not consider that the excellencies of the scriptures will be continually unfolding their hidden treasures as precious jewels are discovered by digging for them. There are men who strive to be original, who are wise above what is written. Therefore, their wisdom is foolishness. They discover wonderful things in advance, 
ideas which reveal that they are far behind in the comprehension of the divine will and purposes of God. In seeking to make plain or to unravel mysteries hid from ages from mortal man, they are like a man floundering about in the mud, unable to extricate himself, and yet telling others how to get out of the muddy sea they themselves are in. This is a fit representation of the men who set themselves to correct the errors of the Bible. No man can improve the Bible by suggesting what the Lord meant to say or ought to have said. Some look to us gravely and say, Don't you think there might have been some mistake in the copyist or in the translators? This is all probable, and the mind that is so narrow that it will hesitate and stumble over this possibility or probability would be just as ready to stumble over the mysteries of the inspired word, because their feeble minds cannot see through the purposes of God. Yes, they would just as easily stumble over plain facts that the common mind will accept and discern the divine, and to which God's utterance is plain and beautiful, full of marrow and fatness. All the mistakes will not cause trouble to one soul or cause any feet to stumble that would not manufacture difficulties from the plainest revealed truth. God committed the preparation of His divinely inspired Word to finite man. This Word, arranged into books, the Old and New Testaments, is the guidebook to the inhabitants of a fallen world, bequeathed to them that, by studying and obeying the directions, not one soul would lose its way to heaven. Those who think to make the supposed difficulties of Scripture plain, in measuring by their finite rule that which is inspired and that which is not inspired, had better cover their faces, as Elijah when the still small voice spoke to him. For they are in the presence of God and holy angels, who for ages have communicated to men light and knowledge, telling them what to do and what not to do, unfolding before them scenes of thrilling interest, waymark by waymark, in symbols and signs and illustrations. And he, God, has not, while presenting the perils clustering about the last days, qualified any finite man to unravel hidden mysteries, or inspired one man, or any class of men, to pronounce judgment as to that which is inspired or is not. When men, in their finite judgment, find it necessary to go into an examination of scriptures to define that which is inspired and that which is not, they have stepped before Jesus to show him a better way than he has led us. I take the Bible just as it is, as the inspired word, I believe its utterances in an entire Bible. Men arise who think they find something to criticize in God's Word. They lay it bare before others as evidence of superior wisdom. These men are, many of them, smart men, learned men, 
They have eloquence and talent, the whole life-work of whom is to unsettle minds in regard to the inspiration of the Scriptures. They influence many to see as they do, and the same work is passed on from one to another, just as Satan designed it should be, until we may see the full meaning of the words of Christ, quote, When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Luke 18.8 Brethren, let not a mind or hand be engaged in criticizing the Bible. It is a work that Satan delights to have any of you do, but it is not a work the Lord has pointed out for you to do. Men should let God take care of his own book, his living oracles, as he has done for ages. They begin to question some parts of Revelation and pick flaws in the apparent inconsistencies of this statement and that statement. Beginning at Genesis, they give up that which they deem questionable, and their minds lead on, for Satan will lead to any length they may follow in their criticism, and they see something to doubt in the whole scriptures. Their faculties of criticism become sharpened by exercise, and they can rest on nothing with a certainty. You try to reason with these men, but your time is lost. They will exercise their power of ridicule even upon the Bible. They even become mockers, and they would be astonished if you put it to them in that light. Brethren, cling to your Bible as it reads, and stop your criticisms in regard to its validity, and obey the word and not one of you will be lost. The ingenuity of men has been exercised for ages to measure the word of God. If the Lord, the author of the living oracles, would throw back the curtain and reveal his wisdom and his glory before them, they would shrink into nothingness and exclaim as did Isaiah, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. Isaiah 6, verse 5. Simplicity and plain utterance are comprehended by the illiterate, by the peasant, and the child as well as by the full-grown man or the giant in intellect. If the individual is possessed of large talents of mental powers, he will find in the oracles of God treasures of truth, beautiful and valuable, which he can appropriate. He will also find difficulties and secrets and wonders which will give him the highest satisfaction to study during a long lifetime, and yet there is an infinity beyond. Men of humble acquirements, possessing but limited capabilities and opportunities to become conversant in the scriptures, find in the living oracles comfort, guidance, counsel, and the plan of salvation as clear as a sunbeam. No one need be lost for want of knowledge, unless he is willfully blind. We thank God that the Bible is prepared for the poor man as well as for the learned man. It is fitted for all ages and all classes. Human minds vary. The minds of different education and thought receive different impressions of the same words 
And it is difficult for one mind to give to one of a different temperament, education, and habits of thought by language exactly the same idea as that which is clear and distinct in his own mind. Yet to honest men, right-minded men, he can be so simple and plain as to convey his meaning for all practical purposes. If the man he communicates with is not honest and will not want to see and understand the truth, he will turn his words and language in everything to suit his own purposes. He will misconstrue his words, play upon his imagination, wrest them from their true meaning, and then entrench himself in unbelief, claiming that the sentiments are all wrong. This is the way my writings are treated by those who wish to misunderstand and pervert them. They turn the truth of God into a lie. In the very same way that they treat the writings in my published articles and in my books, so do skeptics and infidels treat the Bible. They read it according to their desire to pervert, to misapply, to willfully wrest the utterances from their true meaning. They declare that the Bible can prove anything and everything, that every sect proves their doctrines right, and that the most diverse doctrines are proved from the Bible. The writers of the Bible had to express their ideas in human language. It was written by human men. These men were inspired of the Holy Spirit. Because of the imperfections of human understanding of language or the perversity of the human mind, ingenious in evading truth, many read and understand the Bible to please themselves. It is not that the difficulty is in the Bible. Opposing politicians argue points of law in the statute book and take opposite views in their application and in these laws. The scriptures were given to men not in a continuous chain of unbroken utterances, but piece by piece through successive generations, as God in His providence saw a fitting opportunity to impress man at sundry times and diverse places. Men wrote as they were moved upon by the Holy Ghost. There is, quote, first the bud, then the blossom, and next the fruit. First the blade, then the ear, after that the full corn in the ear. End of quote. This is exactly what the Bible utterances are to us. There is not always perfect order or apparent unity in the Scriptures. The miracles of Christ are not given in exact order, but are given just as the circumstances occurred which called for this divine revealing of the power of Christ. The truths of the Bible are as pearls hidden. They must be searched, dug out by painstaking effort. Those who take only a surface view of the scriptures will, with their superficial knowledge, which they think is very deep, talk of the contradictions of the Bible and question the authority of the scriptures. But those whose hearts are in harmony with truth and duty will search the scriptures with a heart prepared to receive divine impressions. The illuminated soul sees a spiritual unity 
one grand golden thread running through the whole, but it requires patience, thought, and prayer to trace out the precious golden thread. Sharp contentions over the Bible have led to investigation and revealed the precious jewels of truth. Many tears have been shed, many prayers offered, that the Lord would open the understanding to His Word. The Bible is not given to us in grand, superhuman language. Jesus, in order to reach man where He is, took humanity. The Bible must be given in the language of men. Everything that is human is imperfect. Different meanings are expressed by the same word. There is not one word for each distinct idea. The Bible was given for practical purposes. The stamps of minds are different. All do not understand expressions and statements alike. Some understand the statements of the scriptures to suit their own particular minds and cases. Prepositions, prejudices, and passions have a strong influence to darken the understanding and confuse the mind, even in reading the words of Holy Writ. The disciples traveling to Emmaus needed to be disentangled in their interpretation of the scriptures. Jesus walked with them disguised, and as a man he talked with them. Beginning at Moses and the prophets, he taught them in all things concerning himself, that his life, his mission, his sufferings, his death were just as the word of God had foretold. He opened their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. How quickly he straightened out the tangled ends and showed the unity and divine verity of the scriptures. How quickly he straightened out the tangled ends and showed the unity and divine verity of the scriptures. How much men in these times need their understanding opened. The Bible is written by inspired men, but it is not God's mode of thought and expression. It is that of humanity. God, as a writer, is not represented. Men will often say such an expression is not like God, but God has not put himself in words, in logic, in rhetoric, on trial in the Bible. The writers of the Bible were God's penmen, not his pen. Look at the different writers. It is not the words of the Bible that are inspired, but the men that were inspired. Inspiration acts not on the man's words or his expressions, but on the man himself, who, under the influence of the Holy Ghost, is imbued with thoughts. But the words receive the impress of the individual mind. The divine mind is diffused. The divine mind and will is combined with a human mind and will. Thus the utterances of the man are the word of God. Unity in Diversity There is variety in a tree. There are scarcely two leaves just alike. Yet this variety adds to the perfection of the tree as a whole. In our Bible, we might ask, Why need Matthew, Mark, Luke, 
and John in the Gospels? Why need the Acts of the Apostles and the variety of writers in the Epistles go over the same thing? The Lord gave His Word in just the way He wanted it to come. He gave it through different writers, each having his own individuality, though going over the same history. Their testimonies are brought together in one book and are like the testimonies in a social meeting. They do not represent things in just the same style. Each has an experience of his own, and this diversity broadens and deepens the knowledge that is brought out to meet the necessities of varied minds. The thoughts expressed have not a set uniformity, as if cast in an iron mold, making the very hearing monotonous. In such uniformity there would be a loss of grace and distinctive beauty. The creator of all ideas may impress different minds with the same thought, but each may express it in a different way, yet without contradiction. The fact that this difference exists should not perplex or confuse us. It is seldom that two persons will view and express truth in the very same way. Each dwells on particular points which his constitution and education have fitted him to appreciate. The sunlight falling upon the different objects gives those objects a different hue. Through the inspiration of His Spirit, the Lord gave His apostles truth to be expressed according to the development of their minds by the Holy Spirit. But the mind is not cramped, as if forced into a certain mold. The Lord Speaks in Imperfect Speech The Lord speaks to human beings in imperfect speech in order that the degenerate senses, the dull, earthly perception of earthly beings may comprehend his words. Thus is shown God's condescension. He meets fallen human beings where they are. The Bible, perfect as it is in its simplicity, does not answer to the great ideas of God, for infinite ideas cannot be perfectly embodied in finite vehicles of thought. Instead of the expressions of the Bible being exaggerated, as many people suppose, the strong expressions break down before the magnificence of the thought, though the penmen selected the most expressive language through which to convey the truths of higher education. Sinful beings can only bear to look upon a shadow of the brightness of heaven's glory. No man to pronounce judgment on God's word. The subject of inspiration has been taught, and finite men have taken it upon themselves to say that some things in the scriptures were inspired and some were not. I was shown that the Lord did not inspire the articles on inspiration published in the review, neither did He approve their endorsement before our youth in the college. When men venture to criticize the Word of God, they venture on sacred holy ground, and had better fear and tremble and hide their wisdom as foolishness. God sets no man to pronounce judgment on His Word, selecting some things as inspired 
and discrediting others as uninspired. The testimonies have been treated in the same way, but God is not in this. The virgin birth is of God's making, marked by His mystery, majesty, and mission. It is truly beyond human understanding, too. But the question is, so what? How many secular things are beyond human understanding as well? If God does exist, and He has the power to create and sustain the universe, why should something like the virgin birth be beyond His power? Here is a definition to a word that you will hear in a few moments. The word is a priori, and the Merriam-Webster Dictionary defines it this way. A priori, relating to what can be known through an understanding of how certain things work, rather than by observation. Now, let's use that word in a question, a worldview question for you. Is your worldview limited to natural laws alone? If so, might a priori have been your basis for dismissing the idea of a virgin birth? In contrast, if your worldview incorporates the supernatural, then you should have a priori no reason to reject it. After all, look at what the angel said to Mary after giving her the incredible news. For with God, nothing shall be impossible. Luke chapter 1, verse 37. An American TV interviewer is reported to have said that if he had an opportunity, the person he would most like to interview would be Jesus. And he would ask him just one question. Are you indeed born of a virgin? Why is that question and the answer to it so important. Ambassadorgroup.org This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.